From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. This week, we focus on bad behavior of all kinds and the reactions to it. Here at New York Public Radio, both the staff and the public have been roiled by allegations and the management's response within our own walls. Today, two high-profile hosts were placed on indefinite leave after accusations of inappropriate conduct. Leonard Lopate and Jonathan Schwartz. As of Friday, that's pretty much all we know. These two suspensions came on the coattails of a larger story concerning John Hockenberry, longtime host of The Takeaway, who left the station after his contract expired in August. Over the weekend, New York Magazine's website, The Cut, ran a first-person piece by a former Takeaway guest who said she was harassed by John. That piece, written by journalist Suki Kim, featured allegations ranging over nearly a decade from several former producers, interns, freelancers, and co-hosts who'd worked at The Takeaway. One thing that's come up again and again amid the charges of unwelcome touching, sexual and racial harassment, and crass language was bullying. He would bang on tables. He would yell. And then we'd go into the show, and while we were on the air, he would talk over me, he would interrupt me, he would say dismissive things. That's Celeste Headley, one of three women of color who were co-hosts on The Takeaway, who complained to management, never saw their concerns addressed, and later left the station. If you're interested in WNYC's story, you can find On the Media's extended take in our midweek podcast, posted last Wednesday at onthemedia.org. In this hour, we take on issues playing out in a broader political and cultural context. And we'll start in Washington, where a wide range of bad behavior prompted the imminent departures of Democratic Congressman John Conyers, Minnesota Democratic Senator Al Franken, and Arizona Republican Trent Franks. Here's Senator Franken. I, of all people, am aware that there is some irony in the fact that I am leaving while a man who has bragged on tape about his history of sexual assault sits in the Oval Office, and a man who has repeatedly preyed on young girls' campaigns for the Senate with the full support of his party. Franken, of course, is referring to Alabama Republican Senate candidate and accused serial sexual predator of teenagers, Roy Moore. On Monday, President Trump, for the first time, threw his full support behind Moore. First in this tweet, Democrats' refusal to give even one vote for massive tax cuts is why we need Republican Roy Moore to win in Alabama. For Republicans in the Senate, transactional politics trumps principle. It even trumps optics. Republicans want Attorney General Jeff Sessions' former seat filled by a fellow party member, and allegations be damned. Slate's Dahlia Lithwick says that the tendency of Democrats to take the high moral ground while Republicans descend, as Michelle Obama might say, when they go low, we go high, has its merits, but also its dangers. There needs to be at least some understanding of the corollary, which is when they go low and then they go lower and then they go lower and we don't react in kind, we we may be getting played. Yeah, you call that unilateral disarmament. As an example of getting played, you cite Mike Huckabee engaging in a kind of doublespeak. 
as long as Al Franken is in the Senate, as long as you've got uh, Conyers and others who are staying in office, then, then why not have Roy Moore? First of all, he's denied the charges against him uh, vehemently and categorically. Tell me what that says to you. Well, that's the two-step. Oops, sorry about Conyers and Franken, but we're still going to let Moore run because let the people decide. Or the accusers mm-hmm. are liars or because it happened a long time ago. Two weeks ago, the same Republican senators who were saying, absolutely, we believe these women, Moore cannot be seated, are now not only funding him, but colluding to say, well, if he says they're all liars, they must be liars. As Democrats try to clean house, Republicans are at the same time moving the goalposts so that things that were breathtaking two weeks ago are now perfectly okay. But is this so surprising? I mean, you're seeing it from the White House with regard to the Russia investigation. First, they say there was no contact. Then they say there was contact, but no collusion. And we've already had hints from Trump lawyers that they're going to say, so what's the difference if they colluded with the Russians? Moving the goalposts isn't surprising. Why does it matter now more than any other time? Because losing a Senate seat the week after we saw this affront that was the tax bill, I don't think Democrats are in a position to say, eh, it's only a Senate seat. I can't think of a time in my life, Brooke, when more has been on the line in terms of not contributing to losses. On the other hand, the Washington Post said that one reason for Franken to resign was that the Democratic Party has simply staked out a much stricter position on these issues than the Republicans. And a poll that was released on Wednesday explains why. It was a Quinnipiac University poll which found that when Americans were asked whether a lawmaker facing multiple sexual harassment accusations should resign, while just 51% of Republicans agreed, 77% of Democrats agreed. The Republicans have made the case, and they've said this overtly, by the way, with respect to Roy Moore, that we're purely transactional. We need the seat. Democrats can say, believe the women. And I think we have to say systems that we have used historically to ferret out abuse and disparity and actual assaults on women are not serving women. Something is broken. And at the same time, I think we can say burning it all down and hoping that the media can try and convict and sentence somebody in a two-hour tweet cycle is not the process that's going to fix this. I am concerned about a lack of proportion in assessing these allegations. But I don't know that I agree that the bench of Democrats on the local level is so shallow that Democrats can't replace the people who resign with people who will respect women and vote in a way that ensures that our systems are not burnt to the ground. So I don't dispute for a moment that the generation that is coming up behind us are not only up to the task, but they're going to smoke us in terms of their capacity to do this better. But boy, I hope we live long enough to see that (laughs) happen. And it seems to me that putting all of our marbles in the virtue basket and not being really careful about saying, hey, Senate Democrats, the same Senate Democrats that called on Franken to step down, when are you going to call on Donald Trump to do the same? When are you going to get up and give a unified statement that what he did is vastly 
more troubling. I think it's the willingness to have this collusion where we all agree that we play by different rules Mm -hmm. uh, among Democrats that frightens me most of all. Mm -hmm. But what are the optics for so-called progressives when they don't respond aggressively? I mean, what's the future of the party then? I think the optics, to the extent that we can project what would have happened had Franken been given what he asked for, which was an ethics inquiry, an open assessment, and a parsing of which of those claims were legitimate and which ones were unfounded, I actually think the optics of saying, let's look at this rather than make a determination in the media— would have been really responsible. And I know you can say, look, there was never going to be a a fair Senate ethics inquiry, so maybe it doesn't matter. But there would have at least been something that looked like a process. I think in the absence of that, we cannot be doing this in a media cycle over Twitter because we're all angry. If we don't like the systems that exist in our workplaces and in the Senate to test allegations and to think through what is serious and what is real, then let's construct better systems. But just doing it by Twitter, that cannot be good for the optics. It sounds (laughs) like you're saying, though, that a moral stand from the people we sent to represent us in the chambers of government uh, has no place in this world right now. Oh, no. Please, 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 let me be clear. What I'm saying is the fundamental flaw at the heart of when they go low, we go high, is that we are setting ourselves up for different ideas of what a moral stand looks like. When Democrats harm vulnerable communities because they're trying to reach to a standard that I think, A, is unmeetable at this moment and B, is not being adhered to by the other side, I think we have to ask ourselves seriously whether there's something more than the morality of how we conduct ourselves that's at issue. I guess the bottom line is that if you want to make the world a better place, you have to function as effectively as you can in the world as it is. Yeah. Yep. (sighs) Sorry, buddy. (laughs) Dahlia, thank you very much. It has been my profound pleasure. Dahlia Lithwick writes about the courts and the law for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus. Her recent article is called The Republicans Have Built an Uneven Playing Field. Coming up, bullying. Not just for kids anymore. This is On the Media. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. Last week, the Republican Senate passed a tax bill intended to restructure the world's largest economy. With stunning haste, without expert consultation, filled with indecipherable handwritten additions, riddled with errors, and which no one had time to read. But the gist was clear. It was a big win for the 1%. The president apparently waking up a happy man this morning. He just tweeted a few moments ago uh, about the tax bill saying biggest tax bill and tax cuts in history just passed in the Senate. Now these great Republicans will be going for final passage. The bill flew in the face of conservative rhetoric about stabilizing the deficit. And that may be the clearest thing about it. Slashing tax rates for corporations and the ultra-rich will send the deficit soaring. No one argues with that. But not to worry, Paul Ryan has signaled his intention to cut Medicare and other entitlements to balance the books. Never, it seems, has the rhetoric of those who back a bill so belied the actual impact of the bill. Molly Mitchell-Moore is a historian at Washington and Lee University, and she says to understand how we arrived at this moment, we have to go back to the late 19th century before the age of income tax. What the federal government did for most of the 19th century was collect money through tariffs, that is to say taxes on imported goods. And state and local governments collected taxes through property taxes, through excise taxes, particularly on sinful things like tobacco and alcohol. Mm -hmm. But what the populace said was that this system of taxation wasn't fair. It didn't get at the extreme wealth of a lot of the Gilded Age robber barons. It didn't tax things like stocks or bonds. And the tariff raised the price of consumer goods. And so what these populists did is they organized around the idea of an income tax, something that would get at the extreme wealth of these Gilded Age millionaires. Hence, the populists wanted an amendment to the Constitution. That's right. There is a provision in the Constitution which prohibits the federal government from levying a direct tax. Mm -hmm. And they amended the Constitution. They organized in all of the states. And ultimately, they convinced enough of the states to ratify the 16th Amendment in 1913. And there was an immediate backlash, I assume, from the rich people at the time, the DuPonts and the Mellons, that the amendment and the income tax was aimed at. They didn't like the constitutional amendment, but they could live with it in part because the first income tax was pretty modest. What happens, though, is World War I. The federal government needs a way to pay for American mobilization. And what they decided to do was levy fairly steep taxes on the wealthy and on corporations. And it's those excess profits taxes, as well as the estate tax, which is also instituted around this time, that really get under the skin of people like the DuPonts. And so in the 1920s, you begin to see a proliferation of loopholes, of ways that the wealthy can exempt certain kinds of income from taxation. In that period, how much did the uh, tax-paying base of Americans grow? It expanded tenfold. So in 1939, some 4 million people, a little bit less, are liable for the income tax. By the end of the war, that's grown to over 40 million. And it took a lot of work to not only convince Americans that they should be paying taxes, but also to educate them how. Uh, And so the Roosevelt administration and the Department of Treasury enlisted Hollywood. The Disney Studios produced two short films featuring Donald Duck filing his taxes. 
help your government by paying your tax and paying it promptly. Oh, what's the big hurry? What's the big hurry? Your country is at war. Your country needs taxes for guns, taxes for democracy, taxes to beat the Axis. <laughs> Do you think that worked? It did. There was a great deal of support, both for the war and for the taxes that funded it. I paid my income tax today. <laughs> right, this idea that ordinary Americans can play as significant, as strong a role in this war effort as the Rockefellers of the world. You see those bombers in the sky. Rockefeller helped to build them, so did I. You argue that the supporters of the Republican tax bill are borrowing the rhetoric of liberals' past. Liberals in the post-war period were really interested in economic growth, and they were really interested in using the tax code to generate that growth. So one of the things that you see in the 1950s and 1960s is that liberal policymakers cut taxes for ordinary middle-class men and women, and at the same time build these liberal state institutions, what we might think of as post-war welfare state. Like? Social Security is, of course, created in 1935, but it grows in the 1950s and 1960s. Mm -hmm. uh, you can look at the Great Society and the War on Poverty. Uh, and one of the things that allows them to do that is that until 1983 or 84, as a result of the 1981 tax cut, the federal tax brackets were not indexed to inflation. So every year, if there's a little bit of inflation, and there was just a little bit of inflation in the 1950s and 1960s, the federal government takes in a little more money without actually having to raise those tax brackets, mm -hmm. right? And in fact, they can cut taxes. But because of that inflation, they can actually see more revenues coming in. So we had a big income tax cut, the Kennedy tax cut, but it was uh, signed by Johnson. And the theory was... If middle-class America had more money in its pocket, it would spend more and spur economic growth. You look at the debate around the 1981 tax cuts, the Reagan revolution. There are a lot of people that are trying to make the comparison between what they're doing in 1981 and what Kennedy and Johnson did in the mid-1960s. And indeed, that Kennedy-Johnson tax cut did spur economic growth. But the philosophy behind the 64 tax cut and behind the 1981 tax cut were very different. The 64 tax cut was designed by Keynesians that thought that the way you grow the economy is to stimulate consumer demand. And the way you stimulate consumer demand is to put more money in the pockets of people in the middle. The 1981 tax cut was a supply-side tax cut rather than a demand-side tax cut. Mm -hmm. The idea here was that you wanted to cut taxes again on people at the top and that those benefits would ultimately trickle down to those in the middle. And the 81 cut hurt the economy. Debt and deficits explode. And that, in part, is due to the revenue shortfalls because of the 1981 tax cut and the recession of 1982 and 1983, as well as the extraordinary defense expenditures during the Reagan years. Now, we associate the fiercest anti-welfare, anti-tax sentiment with Republicans like Reagan and later the Tea Party, but you say that the Democratic Party played their part, too, in fueling the anti-tax rhetoric. In the 1950s, and particularly in the 1960s, Democratic state builders are really wary of talking about welfare. 
President Johnson, for example, was very concerned that his war on poverty, that his great society not be seen as a welfare program. Uh, He talked about turning tax eaters, and these are his words, Hmm. about turning tax eaters into taxpayers, right? So there is this real effort to avoid the stigma of welfare. And uh, the result is? The result is that most people who do, in fact, receive significant forms of economic security from the federal government don't know that they do, right? So you have Social Security, you have Medicare. After 1965, after 1972, you have supplemental security insurance. People understand those to be entitlements. They are entitled to them because they have paid for them. Then you have these even more hidden kinds of benefits. And these are things provided largely through the tax code, the home mortgage interest deduction, for example. It is the United States de facto housing policy. We spend far more in revenues lost to the home mortgage interest deduction than we do on public housing. But because it's done through the tax code, it does not feel like a benefit. And then you have welfare, which is the most visible and the least expensive of all of these programs. But it makes it possible to argue that the federal government isn't spending on people like me. The Mm -hmm. federal government is spending on people who don't work. Uh, They are the takers rather than the makers. You argue that the strategy of hiding middle-class tax benefits has backfired. Would you say that the Republicans have been able to wrest control of the rhetoric? Certainly, they have lost control of the terms of the debate. One of the best examples of this is the so-called death tax. Liberals ceded ground to anti-tax conservatives when they allowed this idea that what is really the estate tax Mm -hmm. is, in fact, a tax on death. Uh, And of course, there's a very different way of framing that. It could, of course, be a tax on the unearned income of the progeny of very wealthy people. The Republicans won that fight. Well, what about the deficit? Throughout the Obama years, Republicans railed against the deficit, and the Democrats responded by making deficit reduction a big concern in a lot of their legislation, which is why... When the Republicans passed this tax bill, it seems like the Democrats have been duped all along. The Republicans never really cared about it. Yeah, I think you could perhaps describe that as kind of rope-a-dope, right? (laughs) Uh, And it really does begin in the 1970s again. It's a guy named Jude Winiski who Mm -hmm. was part of this emerging conservative counter-establishment that people like Jane Mayer have talked about. He writes this editorial called The Theory of the Two Santa Clauses. And he makes the argument that in the 1950s and 1960s, Democrats had fashioned themselves into the Santa Claus of spending. They were able to give their constituents gifts in the form of federal program. And what Winiski says is we have to stop being deficit scolds. And what we need to do is become the Santa Claus of tax reduction. And it takes a while, but it is a transformation that is by and large complete by the 1990s, as the Republican Revolution really does start to expel old school deficit hawks from the Republican Party because they are not towing the new tax cut party line. But they were making a big deal of it during the Obama administration. Well, it's good politics if it's somebody else. 
Uh, But certainly if you look at the two major Republican administrations after the 1970s, both Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush's, you see extraordinary deficits and debt happening in those two administrations. It's a con game. Uh, And Democrats have fallen into that trap. How would you have us in the media talk about taxes in a more meaningful way? Well, one of the things that we need to remember, and perhaps Oliver Wendell Holmes said this best, are that taxes are what we pay for a civilized society. We might want to think about what it is that those taxes that come out of our paycheck every month, in fact, do. And the ways in which ordinary middle-class, working-class Americans benefit from the services that those taxes pay for. Molly, thank you very much. Thank you very much. This was fun. Molly Mitchell-Moore is a historian at Washington and Lee University and author of Tax and Spend, The Welfare State, Tax Politics, and the Limits of American Liberalism. This is On the Media. On the Media is brought to you by Zbiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic, invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/otm to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com/otm and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, Congress has passed a law that will ban TikTok. But why? If you are going to take away an app used by 170 million people, I believe that lawmakers and the government who ostensibly work for us, the American people, owe us more information about why that divestiture is being moved forward. Debating the TikTok ban. That's the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. As the light shines on abusers in Congress and the boardroom, there are, of course, those who seek to exploit the significance of this moment for their own less-than-idealistic ends. Take the tale of Sam Cedar, longtime MSNBC contributor, lefty pundit, and comic, this week fired over an eight-year-old tweet that supposedly made light of child rape. Except that it didn't do that at all. It did exactly the opposite. But MSNBC immediately caved into pressure exerted with malice aforethought by the alt-right troll Mike Cernovich. We'll get to that guy in a moment. But first, Sam, welcome to On the Media. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to begin with the tweet. This was in 2009. It concerned film director Roman Polanski, who was being prosecuted for the rape of a 13-year-old girl. But among the admirers of his masterpieces, like Chinatown, he had defenders. And you smelled moral relativism or some hypocrisy. Do you want to retweet yourself or shall I? I'm happy to do it. I have no compunction about it the first time, so I'll do it the second time. If I remember correctly... It was 
don't care, Re Polanski, but if my daughter is ever raped, I hope it's by an older, truly talented man with a great sense of mise-en-scene. Now, Mother Jones, the liberal magazine, wrote, thanks to the demands of a lunatic conservative, they, meaning MSNBC, cut off Sam Cedar for a single lame joke made on Twitter in 2009. I disagree. It was not a lame joke. It was raw and transgressive in a sort of Sarah Silverman way, but it was perfectly constructed satire. Do you have any regrets about making this particular joke to satirize Polanski's defenders? No, I have uh, no regrets about it at all. I think it expressed the outrage I felt that there were people who were willing to forgive Roman Polanski's rape conviction simply because he was an exceptional filmmaker. I found that appalling. Did it make any kind of stink when you typed it? To be honest with you, I don't remember, but I doubt it. Flash forward to a week ago, you're on your way to your birthday party. What happened? Well, I had gotten off the uh, subway, and I had noticed on my Twitter notifications that two people, ostensibly people, had retweeted this tweet from 2009. At the time, it just occurred to me, I, my tweets are not going into the Smithsonian. I can just delete it and go to my birthday party because who cares? Had I known that it was Mike Cernovich who was orchestrating a smear campaign, I would have pinned it at the top of my Twitter feed. How long did it take you to figure out what exactly was going on? About an hour. I was going down to the supermarket to get some paper plates for that same birthday dinner, and I got a call from the PR department at MSNBC. I gather that MSNBC didn't say, oh, man, Sam, they're playing some sort of dirty trick on you, and they are posting something you once wrote entirely out of context and making it seem like you're indifferent to the rape of your own child, and I promise you we've got your back. No. Are you aware of who Mike Cernovich is? Yes. Do you know that he is retweeting your tweet? I said, no. And he said, you, you wrote it? And I said, yes. Why wouldn't I? And you went to your party and you blew out the candles and everything came out perfectly, except that at MSNBC, things were going on. As you reconstructed, what was going on? Well, you know, it's hard for me to know. I mean, because uh, I wasn't privy to any of it. Each of my advertisers on my podcast, who were listed on my sponsor page, had received one email suggesting that they were a rape victim and that this advertiser was supporting a pro-rape proponent, I guess. Over the course of the week, MSNBC uh, appeared to have fired me. I mean, the TikTok is pretty convoluted, but I think there wasn't disgust at the tweet. There was fear of the alt-right ginning up a controversy. My feeling was like, you're making the controversy. These people are very marginal people. And more importantly, they're clearly misrepresenting what I wrote. And you must surely see that. Did they ever give you a justification or even a rationale for their decision? No. And I understand why I lost some advertisers over this, because if you're a company that sells soap, you don't have the expertise to make an assessment about a controversy. It's not your job. It's not your responsibility. But if you're a media company who the public relies on 
to report the reality of the world. And you can't make an assessment about this when on one side, it's someone who's worked with you for years, where the English is very clear, where I have a very long public record, versus someone who is a known professional smearer who himself was charged with rape and pled down to a misdemeanor assault, who has a documented record of denying the existence of date rape, who has shown himself to be white supremacist friendly, and I'm understating that. If you as a media organization cannot make this assessment, then it's all fake news. Sam, thanks very much. My pleasure. Sam Cedar is the host of the Majority Report podcast and a contributor to MSNBC. I say contributor, not former contributor, because the morning after Cedar and I spoke, MSNBC came around to his way of thinking, admitted its error, and rescinded the firing, which was as courageous as its original impulse was cowardly. But what of the bully who picked the fight? Mike Cernovich, the alt-right meme fabricator who invented scandal where none actually existed. Let's just talk about how the media covers up pedophilia comments, rape comments, sexual harassment. So that tweet was actually posted by Sam Setter of MSNBC. So NBC has refused to comment. So it is time now to contact NBC advertisers. Cernovich entered the online scene as a so-called men's rights activist whose writing combines anti-feminist bile with alpha male self-actualization, including instructions for predatory conquest of women. But in the Trump era, he's expanded his social media portfolio to ginning up outrage against perceived enemies, often by floating grotesque conspiracy theories and sliming liberal politicians and media figures. He was, for example, a vocal promoter of Pizzagate, the fake story last year of a child prostitution ring supposedly run by Hillary Clinton, and other degenerate Democrats. Pizzagate is real. There are pedophiles at the highest level of media, Hollywood, and in government. Pedophilia goes all the way to Congress, all the way to the White House. This wasn't an outlier accusation. Pedophilia is his go-to slur. This could be an actual pedophile ring. They're all connected to this guy. His Twitter handle is... V-I-C-B-E-R-G. What's the real way that you become big time famous in Hollywood? You have to molest children on camera and then they own you for the rest of your career. Mitt Romney is pro-pedophile. I've never heard Mitt Romney disavow pedophilia. All of that to say he's a troll. And as of the last few weeks, a troll who is starting to get results. Just before the dirty trick against Cedar, he unearthed legitimate details of sexual misconduct by Democratic Congressman John Conyers and gave them to BuzzFeed. That was an outlier. Cernovich had the goods, and Conyers is now stepping down. Now Cernovich hopes to leverage his success on a hundred-some Sam Cedars of the world. His object, Cernovich says, is to show up the liberal media for its hypocrisy. If reporters can dig through the Twitter feeds of alt-writers and Trump supporters and damage them with their own words, then turnabout is fair play. If CNN pundit and Trump defender Jeffrey Lord can get fired for tweeting, Hail Hitler, and the satire explanation doesn't get him off the hook, then 100 lefties are going down. 
It is only with trepidation that we decided to give this guy a platform, but he has trolled his way into relevance. So we thought that at least we should try to get inside his head, beginning with just his basic methodology. When you accused a New York Magazine writer of sexual predation, you said, quote, I can get that on page one of Google in due time. How is that accomplished? Basic search engine optimization, graphics design, creating compelling content that people want to like and share, and getting message out. Same way if you're at NPR, when you name this podcast, you're going to put in the URL Sam Cedar dash Mike Cernovich dash MSNBC dash whatever, because you want that to show up when people search for this whole brouhaha. And of course, knowing your audience, you knew this would be the quintessential red meat to the base. Well, I mean, red meat, the way you're characterizing it, I would say that when K-File goes through the tweets of um, social media posts of people. That's CNN's Andrew Kaczynski. Or tries to track down a anonymous Reddit user who created a GIF. I wonder, would you call that red meat for the liberal base, right? Let's end this call out culture. Let's end this, oh, you're a bad guy and I'm going to try to find some, you tweeting something someday and define your entire identity around that. Let's end that. But I'm not going to unilaterally disarm. I'm going to say, fine, let's all agree to not be jerks. But if one side is going to be a jerk, then everybody has to be a jerk. And with Sam Cedar, you saw the Polanski tweet and said, bingo. Do you remember your actual thought at the moment you ran across it? I was elated, thrilled with the person who found it. And in fact, I gave a bonus to the person who found it. Okay, you are many things, but not stupid. You obviously understand that Sam Cedar's tweet was not so much a joke as just plain irony, satire, that he was neither defending Roman Polanski or shrugging at his daughter's rape. You knew that absolutely because there's absolutely no other way to read it. But you saw opportunity knocking, right? That's your interpretation, which I disavow because – Meryl Streep stood up and applauded. Roman Polanski has called him a god. A number of people have called him a god and said he's an amazing hold man. Hold it, hold then, it. Meryl Streep has nothing to do with this question. The question oh, is, sure it does. The was culture. there any the doubt in culture. your was there any doubt in your mind that Sam Cedar was ridiculing those who would be forgiving of a child rapist because of his artistic achievements? Was there any doubt in your mind? That oh, much doubt. That's not. That's why I emailed them for comment and asked, "What the hell is this?" And they okay, didn't. Okay, I don't believe you. I, I think you're lying to me. I, I don't. You don't have to believe me. or you know not. That's that's your thing. But uh, do people believe that I really think people should go rape people? The media says, "Oh, Cernovich claims you know people should go out and rape." Well, if the media is going to say that about me then how dare anybody in the media say they think I'm lying? How dare people in the media who call everybody Nazis still lie, say I'm alt-right, say I'm a white supremacist, say I'm this? How dare anybody in the media ever call me a liar when they lie about people on the right every day? So enjoy the new world where people are going to mischaracterize you. Let me give you an example of a published statement that is indicting on its face, that is not open for other interpretation, that is smoking gun evidence of depravity, and it concerns what to do the day after you have date-raped someone. 
quote. Whoa, whoa. Sometimes, See, now you're lying. No, I've never said date rape. I've said definitely okay, there are many hold false it, rape hold it. Said, No, let you're read, lying now. Let me, you're lying. Mike, if you think let you're me read lie, you the no, quote. Let me read you lying. the quote. You are lying Mike, right Mike, now. Let me you're read not you the lie quote. and mischaracterize what I've said. Let's Sometimes, understand that right now. You're not running anything, I'm not going sir. to mischaracterize anything. If you want to have a real anything. conversation, we can. If you want Mike, to play little I'm games I'm going to read you a direct quote. And we're not going to stand up for that. Mike, I'm going to read you a fraud. direct quote. You're fraud. This call is over. Mike. I'm going to post the audio, obviously, because we both recorded. Mike, I'm going to read you a direct quote. So you're a fraud. You're Sometimes a liar. you so should take a whore out to breakfast. If you've seen in public the morning after, she's going to have a horrible time having you prosecuted for rape. Oh, we need an explanation here. I did slightly mischaracterize him. In his field guides for men trying to get laid, he never describes his methods as date rape because he claims there is no such thing. The passage I was quoting is one in which he suggests tactics for men to inoculate themselves against dangerous accusations. One of the pieces of advice, once again, is... Sometimes you should take the whore out to breakfast. If you're seen in public the morning after, she's going to have a horrible time having you prosecuted for rape. And he goes on, quote, If a chick calls you the next day, keep in mind she may be recording the conversation or the police may be monitoring it. And if the police call, he says, don't answer the phone. Well, duh, Cernovich has written of his fetish for choking the women he's having sex with, the kind of detail that could be so blown out of proportion. I mention this now because of the questions I never got a chance to ask, such as why so many of his accusations, whether about Roman Polanski or Pizzagate or liberal media targets, are about sexual predation. Why the obsession? Has he been a victim? He was once himself prosecuted for rape, which was pled down to misdemeanor battery. Does he blame that on political correctness? I would have observed that in the psychology and criminology literature on rape, the consensus is that it's less a sexual act than a power trip. The thrill is from imposing power on someone else. Is his online violence really about hypocrisy in politics? Or is he just a serial choker of truth? And I would have asked him how much he's grooving on all the attention, no matter how he's earned it. Although he'd actually answered that question in his live Periscope feed moments before our conversation. How can they ever call out our tweets now? Right? They can't. And I got more fame. So Mike Cernovich, who's already a household name, is more of a household name. Mike Cernovich has now been set up as a foil to the entire media establishment. Later, within seconds of hanging up on us, he was back on Periscope ranting about me. He thinks this is an NPR show. It isn't, but you'll get the drift. And we're back. Mike Cernovich, Cernovich.com. NPR, I caught them in the act trying to commit fraud, journalistic fraud, this is why you always tape record the conversations. So, um, you know, because they recorded me and I told them I was going to be recording, obviously. So I ended the call. Mike Cernovich played that hang-up sequence over and over and later on his podcast and on Facebook and on Twitter, which is how memes are made. 
He claimed victory over the corrupt liberal media because Mike Cernovich is famous and powerful and knows how all this works and who could be so naive to confront Mike Cernovich. We shall have that answer, I suppose. We placed the call to get inside his head, and now we are there. So stay tuned. I have 2,500 tweets that are about to get the attention they so richly deserve. I just hope there's nothing in there linking me, shamefully and undeniably, to pizza. Cernovich's trolling tactics, name-calling, and ruthless attention-seeking make him seem like a schoolyard bully? Well, that's because he is. It's just a bigger schoolyard, which seems to be what our politics and much of our media have become. So we end the hour with a conversation about what we know about bullies with Emily Bassalon, staff writer for the New York Times Magazine and the author of Sticks and Stones, Defeating the Culture of Bullying and Rediscovering the Power of Character and Empathy. She says that speaking broadly, there are two kinds of bullies. One type of bully is someone who's in a position of having more clout than the person who they're attacking. The second type is actually called a bully victim, like as if there was a hyphen in between. Mm. These are people who are really struggling socially. And so their social struggle can take the form of lashing out at other people, or they can end up bearing the brunt of other kids' attacks because they are just not thriving in the environment that they're in. One bully victim is Snape in the Harry Potter series, very domineering and abuses his power. But we also know that his backstory is that Harry's father bullied him. It may have escaped your notice, but life isn't fair. Your blessed father knew that. In fact, he frequently sought My it. father was a great man. Your father was a swine. <laughs> So if Snape is an example of the second kind, the first kind, the schoolyard bully, we have myriad examples of that. This is ultimately where many of us take our idea of bullies. I'm thinking of the first Back to the Future film. George McFly, the nerdy kid, sees the bully called Biff forcing himself onto the girl he loves in a car. George, help me, please. Just turn around, McFly, and walk away. No, Biff. You leave her alone. He punches Biff. And Biff topples. And that's our beloved image of how you stop a bully. The problem is that in real life, it almost never works that way. So what happens in real life? What works instead, if anything? In real life, what works is the community coming together, in some way making it clear that his or her behavior is not okay and needs to change. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about what victims should do about bullies, but that suggests that victims are responsible for stopping the bullying behavior, and it takes the rest of us off the hook. But when the rest of us try to act, we are much more successful usually when we do that collectively. Nowadays, America has a bullying problem. You would agree, right? I would agree. I think, in particular from President Trump, that is not a model for kids growing up and that is sending a message that 
being overly aggressive, mocking other people, that that's all a route to power. And I should say this is not just Trump. I mean, you can also see it as a product of reality television where people's cruelty toward each other is celebrated and it's how you make money. And would you say the culture of an organization is set in the president's office? Yes, I think it's true about the leadership of any organization, that when you see the people in charge participating in or condoning in any form of bad behavior, it makes it seem more accessible. When I was doing a lot of research in schools, if adults were snapping at each other or yelling at kids, I found that it was much more likely that I would hear the kids being mean to each other. So back to the White House. You say that part of the reason we haven't been able to properly contain or understand this particular bully is that we aren't really looking to reality for guidance. We're still looking to the movies for that single hero moment, Republicans to stand up to him. The Republicans in Congress have a lot of power if they want to use it. What we've seen, however, is they've come forward one by one to challenge Trump. People like John McCain or Jeff Flake or Bob Corker. One by one, President Trump is able to dispatch them. If they got together and actually made him pay a price in terms of legislation or hearings or some other real consequence, and they soberly held a press conference where they all stood in an array, that is the most effective and sort of fair way to try and stop a bully because then it's on everyone. We, the American people, have made him powerful. So what's that say about our culture, that it was so ripe for Trump's rise? We didn't appreciate how many of our crucial democratic traditions are based on social norms instead of laws. And I think one of Trump's fail-safes is to say, well, what I did wasn't against the law. And that makes it seem as if unless something is illegal, we shouldn't be troubled by it. So how's it being reflected? If we are starting to see the effect of having a bully in the White House, you know, is there enough data or any kind of anecdotal suggestion that it's having an impact in schools? It's going to be hard to isolate Trump's bullying behavior as a cause of a kind of broader social phenomenon. Another piece of research from schools that I always find heartening is that when you poll kids about bullying, they will tell you that they don't like it. And when you tell kids that, the polling results, that can help reduce bullying in a school. In the moment, it's hard to challenge the kid who's acting like a bully. They seem powerful. And it's only upon reflection when we realize that the group isn't necessarily on board, that kids feel a sense of, wait a second, maybe next time I'll do something to try to help another kid out. There's no way that grown-ups could do that in the Capitol, is there? Well, I don't know. Why not? They're not immature enough to do that. They're not immature enough? <laughs> they are to... completely calcified. <laughs> right. And there are political calculations they're making about their own base that are making them reluctant. But that's not a matter of being capable. It's a matter of deciding that you don't choose. Yeah. Emily, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Emily Bazelon is a staff writer for The New York Times Magazine and the author of Sticks and Stones, Defeating the Culture of Bullying and Rediscovering the Power of Character and Empathy. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Michael Lowinger, and Leia Fetter. 
We had more help from Monique Laborde, John Hanrahan, and Sarah Chadwick Gibson. And our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Terrence Bernardo. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.